Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. You may be seated. So the prophet Ezekiel is... um, Actually, Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, talks about the prophet Ezekiel, and he says he's surveying what used to be a well-oiled machine that was the nation of Israel. And now this nation is in a heap of rubble. It's a mess. They're losing their national identity. They're losing their governing structure. They're losing their place in the world. They're losing their identity. And the Babylonians are about to make it even worse and are making it even worse. They're leaving them in a pile. There's virtually nothing left. And Ezekiel in the Old Testament says, I will take a sprig from the top of a cedar a tiny little fragile branch, and I will plant that sprig on the top of one of Israel's highest mountains. And it will grow into a mighty cedar tree, greater than all the other cedars, totally independent of human care. They can't get to it. It's the top of a mountain. And in this great cedar tree will nest Birds of every kind. And what's Ezekiel talking about there? He's talking about the kingdom of God. And Jesus echoes the same type of image in Matthew 13 where he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The Bible talks about the kingdom of God as something that starts out looking very small and very insignificant and very fragile, but grows into a mighty and powerful empire ruled by Jesus in which people of every tribe and tongue become naturalized citizens of this kingdom. So we're wrapping up our series on life in the kingdom, which has been about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And the question we've been attempting to answer is, what does it look like when a human being gets caught up in the current of this unstoppable force that is the kingdom of God? What does it look like when we get swept away by this kingdom current? And the question we've been attempting to answer is... um, How does that affect our life, personally, individually? How does that change us as as people? When someone says, I surrender all the rights of my life, I give Jesus power of attorney over my life, he has access to all my resources, he has access to all my priorities, he has access to my time, my agenda, He has access to my character. He has access to everything. What happens to a human life when you give Jesus power of attorney, becoming part of his kingdom? And what we see is when we do that, we begin to live on a whole other plane of existence. 
that's different than other people have experienced. Because the kingdom of heaven is where the power of God flows through seemingly insignificant and weak things in order to demonstrate that the kingdom is actually more, a more substantial reality than the visible world that we see. And sometimes this invisible reality that the kingdom of God is trumps the visible things that we see with our own eyes. Which is why in the Old Testament, uh, we, when God was planting the seed of this kingdom and he began to populate the kingdom of God, he, he did so through a, a line of women who weren't able to have children. That's who he used to populate the seed of the kingdom. It doesn't make sense. The visible world said this shouldn't happen, but it was accessing from this invisible reality that is God in his reign in order to create and populate this kingdom. That's why Jesus, when he was on earth, was able to draw from this invisible reality and actually pull power and resources into this world that we see. So he's standing with people, and this little kid gives one of the disciples two fish and five loaves of bread, and Jesus is saying, it's enough, give it to me, because I am going to draw from this invisible kingdom into this reality and we'll feed thousands with this little bit and then have leftovers. And the problem is today that many Christians don't actually live as though the kingdom of God is real. We can't see it, so we don't believe it. Or even if we do believe it, we're not really sure what it means, and so we don't really think it has much power. So Jesus, in wrapping up this Sermon on the Mount, this life in the kingdom, Matthew 5 through 7, ends with this paragraph, and this is where we're going to sit on. This is what we're going to sit on today. It's Matthew 7, 24 through 27, if you want to turn in your scriptures. If you, if you don't have your Bible, if you don't have a phone with a Bible app, you want to just listen, that's great. It's also in the bulletin notes. You can follow along. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So the first thing that we need to figure out in this passage is what does this storm represent? In order to unlock the meaning of this passage, what does that storm actually represent? So we're going to do a little word association game. You guys ready? Are you guys awake this morning? Word association? Are you ready? Hector's not ready. Is everybody else ready? <laughs> All right. Hector's ready. He's lying to me. All right. So here it is. I'm going to tell you two words, and you tell me what comes to mind when I say these two words. All right? Bible and flood. What comes to mind? Anything? Noah. Huh? Noah. Yes. Noah. It brings our attention to this day in the very, almost the beginning of creation where God, in a way, symbolically seems to start over with creation. There was only one family, an extended family, that wasn't acting kind of wickedly, doing whatever they want, an outright rebellion against God, and God brings this type, of, this type of judgment. And that's what we think of with this storm, a type of judgment. This is referring to a day that Jesus will come back in the future when he returns to earth and 
he's going to separate everyone into two categories, people that want to have Jesus as their king and people that don't want to have Jesus as their king. Jesus is a gentleman, as someone said better than I long ago, that Jesus is a gentleman. He won't force himself on anyone. So if you want Jesus as your king, he's glad to be it. And if you don't, he's not going to force you. That's what the flood and the storm represents, that day that Jesus comes back. And in Palestine, there's basically two seasons. There's November through April, and that's kind of the mild winter season. And there is actually a significant amount of rain in that season. I mean, um, there's a lot of beautiful landscape, and there was back then as well. And there would be some storm surges during this time. They'd probably get one or two big storms a year during that time. So they were familiar with what a storm was. But then May through October was hot, dry, arid. And during this season, um, the ground would crack. Uh, the, it would, there's a lot of sand in that area. And, but this sand would be swept away when these big torrential downpours would come. So when people were listening to Jesus say this, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew, they would think, what kind of fool would build a house on the sand when they know it's going to be swept away when the storm season comes? Nobody would do it. It would be very, very, very obvious to people at that time. It would be kind of like uh, someone today going to southwest Florida and going to one of those beaches in southwest Florida and saying, yeah, and that's along the Gulf of Mexico, so the, the water's warmer and it mixes with the cool Atlantic, and it's, it's ripe. They just get pummeled with hurricanes in southwest Florida, southeast too, but southwest Florida just gets pummeled. It'd be like a, a guy walking out in one of those beaches in southwest Florida like, man, this is good, the Gulf of Mexico here. This is absolutely beautiful. It's warm water. I can... This would be a great place to have a house on this beach. And he brings in a group of contractors and they start working on this house. He builds this house right on the sand in the beach, right as the waves are beating up against it. People would think he was insane because it's not going to last more than a year. That's kind of what picture Jesus is giving. And the other thing to consider in this is that for a while, that house would be money. It would be fantastic. It would be great. He's living on a beach on the Gulf of Mexico. He can go out every morning and have a hot cup of steaming coffee and, and look at the waves and have his, you know, read the paper on his back porch while he's drinking coffee and looking at the waves and enjoying life. And he can have friends over in the evening and do a grill out and you know, they can watch the sunset into the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, how perfect and beautiful is that? So for a while, it looks incredible, and it's working, and life is good, and then the hurricane comes. And the Bible talks pretty openly about the fact that some people who don't want Jesus as their king, life appears to be working. And then Jesus shows up. And one of the points on the Sermon on the Mount is that if you want to ensure that you'll be in the kingdom of heaven on that day that Jesus returns, anchor yourself in the kingdom now. So how do we anchor ourselves in this invisible reality that is the kingdom of God? Jesus answers it in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What on earth does it mean to hear and do the words of Jesus? So let's start with the opposite, because sometimes when you're trying to learn how to do something, it's, 
it's, it's good to learn how to not do something first. It's good to learn the opposite of it. So this, earlier this year, I did a basic rider uh, class for motorcycles in southern Ohio. And it was, <laughs> during this class, it, it, we were outside, you know, actually on the motorcycles, and it was downpouring, and we were sitting there waiting in the shed for it to stop downpouring. And then it stopped, he's like, all right, we have a little window of time, let's go do our, our um, brake tests. Like, it's a great time to practice your using brakes, how to negotiate the front and the rear wheel brake, because it's wet. We're like, I don't think that's a good time. I think that's a terrible time to practice doing this. But what they did was we went out there, and you, he put a line, uh, you know, maybe 30, 40 yards away, and you had to accelerate to a certain speed up to this line. As soon as you hit the line, you had to negotiate the tension between the front and the, and the back brake. So the front brake is up here. The rear, rear brake is your right uh, foot. So it's my turn, and I'm going, and I just I accelerate up to the speed that he wants you at, and then I kind of slammed on the brakes, and I went too heavy on the rear brake, which if you know anything about motorcycles, that's, that could be big trouble. So I started to feel the rear wheel kick out to the side, and my instructor's like, stop, 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 stop. And he said, um, if you were going 20 miles an hour faster, and you applied that same pressure, the bike would have thrown you you would have been in major, major trouble because the back tire seizes. You know, on a bicycle, you want to be careful about squeezing the front wheel too hard because you'll flip over. But in a motorcycle, you want the weight on the front brake so it stops more smoothly, not on the rear brake because it'll throw you. And he painted a pretty clear and vivid image for me. And I was like, I will not do that again, and I never have. I've, I've just been very, very careful about that because I learned the not way to do it. And sometimes recognizing how not to do something is very helpful. So how do we not hear the words of Jesus and do them? What does it look like to not do that? I put these things in your, your bulletin. It might be helpful. Here's what it looks like to not do this right. And the, by the way, I'm pulling all of these in order from the Sermon on the Mount. You can go back and check my homework. Number one, you obey the letter of the law as it relates to God's commandments, while neglecting the deeper meaning of the commandment. Hey, everybody, don't kill anybody this week. Don't murder anybody. We're all going to do probably pretty good on that, right? I mean, there might be temptations, but there, we're, 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 we're all probably going to do pretty good on not killing anybody. Probably most of us does, have done pretty good on not killing anybody this far into our life. And, and what does Jesus do? He ups the ante. He internalizes it. If you're, if you're not doing this right, you say, I'm good. I never killed anybody. But if you're doing it right, Jesus ups the ante and he says, well, that's not good enough. Even if you have a seed of hate in your life, if you're angry, short-tempered, that you're guilty. You're guilty. If you're just hearing it and not doing it, you're, you're obeying the bare minimum of the commandment. Number two, you will practice spiritual disciplines for others to see instead of practicing them for God alone to see and reward. So we see, <clears throat> you know, it talks about praying in the Sermon on the Mount. You pray to impress others. That's what it means. And Jesus is teaching us that when you pray, you should be so focused on who you're talking to, the Father, that it doesn't really matter who's listening to. You're not even doesn't even register. 
that's really hard to get to. But when you are doing this as someone who is hearing and not doing, if you're doing it the wrong way, you're focused on what other people think. Number three, you'll be over, overly attached to the cares and concerns of this world instead of resting confidently in God's kingdom provision. You'll be anxious about daily needs instead of seeking first the kingdom and trusting that somehow he's going to make everything else work. Number four, you'll be judgmental of others. And if that's you, stop judging people, you judgmental judger. We don't like that here, and we sniff that out pretty quickly. Because nothing blocks the flow of the kingdom more than judgmentalism. Nothing. And yet, it's the one thing the church is known for. Isn't that insane? All right, these are things that happen when you hear the words of Jesus and don't do them. But hearing the words of Jesus and doing them actually means that you are becoming the type of person who obeys God's commandments naturally. You're not just doing new stuff. You're becoming a new person. I hope I don't step on anyone's toes. But one of the public battles that Christians have chosen to fight that I'm absolutely perplexed by, and I'm perplexed by a lot of what we choose to fight, but one of the public battles is, or it used to be a bigger push than it is now, is, is getting the Ten Commandments into the school system. This used to be something that people talked about a lot. We just need to get the Ten Commandments, just post them in the school system. That you know the world's against us. We can't put the, you know, got to be able to do that because if we do that, that'll fix all of our problems. I'm not exactly sure where that's coming from. I don't know who that's for. That's either I don't know if that's for Christians, kids in the school, and teachers to remind them how to act, or if that's for to constrain evil in some way, and, and people point back to maybe dates where we start taking that out of the schools and all of a sudden the schools start getting really bad. But I think historically, if we look at that honestly, with integrity, I think there were other things that were happening. It was beyond just taking the Ten Commandments out of the school. Now, the Ten Commandments are fantastic and important. But if you're following Jesus in the New Testament era, You don't need them. Because you actually have the spirit of Jesus inside you, using scripture as a tutor to remind you how to act and to lead you to repentance where you're not acting well. But you begin to follow his commandments instinctively. That's the whole point. You no longer need a list to remind... Oh, I'm not supposed to murder anybody today. Okay, I won't do that. Good, all right. You actually begin to follow Jesus instinctively as he lives in you. You don't need a list of things to remind yourself every day. That's the whole point of the new covenant. He changes our heart. He takes hearts of stone and makes them moldable and soft to his will. This type of hearing and doing that Jesus describes is the result of an ongoing, moment-to-moment, -moment, intimate relationship with Jesus. So another thing this passage might be pushing back against is the false sense of security that we might have when we say a prayer at some point in time where we ask Jesus into our hearts with any further evidence whatsoever that we are gradually, slowly learning how to think 
and live as a disciple of Jesus. It might be a false sense of security to just say, I said a prayer once, I'm good, I don't have to think about Jesus anymore, I covered my bases on that one, we're good. We should see what Jesus says about that. If you've entrusted your life, your very soul, into someone's hands, so praying that prayer is good, praying that prayer and never interacting with Jesus again is not. Because if you entrust your life, your very soul, into someone's hands, wouldn't you want to have an ongoing relationship with that person? Like, think of marriage. Imagine Kara and I, we had a, a sweet wedding, it was wonderful, surrounded by friends, my best man's speech was a low point, but other than that, it was a great, it was a great wedding, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I'm sorry for even bringing it up, babe, and you'll never see it because it's not posted anywhere. Very embarrassing, but everything else was fantastic. That was an amazing day. That was an incredible day. Imagine me at the end of that wedding saying to Kara, well, this was really great. I just, I'm so glad that we're connected covenantally, however you say that word, covenantally now, and we're in relationship together now, and this is official, this is awesome, and you know what? Have a great life, and we'll see you later. <laughs> and yet, sometimes that's how we treat this sinner's prayer as, okay, we're officially in this relationship with Jesus, I don't have to, to, to think about him anymore. When you're in relationship with your spouse, they shape you. I mean, Kara gave me a pile of books when we were dating, seriously moving toward... Oh, actually, we might have been engaged, I don't remember. But she gave me a pile of books to read. Like, she's grooming me. She, there's some things you need to work on before we officially get married. There's some things... I mean, there's a pile of books for me to go through. Like, I got it. I'll, I'll do it, babe. I'll do it. And she still gave, she gave me another book recommendation yesterday, and I, I'm listening to it on Audible, and I love it. Because when you're married to someone, they actually shape you. They, you begin to become the, like them. And the same is true in this ongoing relationship with Jesus. Hearing and doing the words of Jesus is not just a hollow commitment of merely saying a rote prayer that you repeat after somebody. And again, that is a part of it. Not always a rote prayer, but some type of conversation where you're confessing and laying down your arms to the king and saying, I am yours, I surrender to you. I believe that you made the way for me on the cross and in your resurrection. That's a part of it, but that's not all. It's a daily entrusting of yourself personally to him in a way that it transforms your life. The phrase that I want to be the lasting after effect of this message is from a verse in Matthew 7, 17. And I'm going to actually use the NASB because I think the ESV version that we typically teach from misses it. It says, Every good tree bears good fruit. The Greek word for good there is agathos. It means intrinsically good. Good by nature. Good through and through. The tree doesn't just act good. The tree is good, is becoming good. If you have a healthy apple tree that is functioning as God created it to function, it will bear healthy apples. If you have a healthy human being who is functioning as God created us to function, it will bear the fruit of love. 
We won't just act loving. We will become loving. Our identity has changed suddenly and then gradually for the rest of our lives. And remember in Genesis when we've talked about this frequently, God creates something and he says, it's good. And he creates something else and he says, it is good. He creates something else, he says, it is good. And the Hebrew word for good actually means it's working like it's supposed to. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes for us a good life. We're living the human life the way it was meant to be lived. And it goes beyond merely telling us how to act good. It helps us actually become good in Christ. So, wrapping this up, here's my recommendations. And these are in your notes. Here's what I would do if I were you. One, I would come back frequently to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through And I would recommend not letting a year go by without carefully, prayerfully reading it slowly. Not reading it just to get through it, but reading it conversationally with God. Like, okay, what do you want to show me here? What do you want to help me see? Where am I cold that my heart needs to become warm? Where am I going through the motions as a disciple of Jesus? Awaken me. Number two, read it as though it were a powerful spiritual MRI scan showing you where you are out of alignment with God. See it as something that sees right through you and is able to actually diagnose your soul. And then when you see a little blip on the screen, a little something that's not supposed to be there in your heart as you're reading the Sermon on the Mount. Three, use that knowledge to drive you into a deeper relationship with Christ, which means confess where you're out of alignment with him. Let's say prayer. Let's pretend I'm reading through the Sermon on the Mount and I hear what Jesus says about prayer and I'm convicted. I'm like, oh man, sometimes I use prayer as a means to show off. And this says, don't do that. This says, pray in a way that your Father who hears you in secret will reward you openly. So pray for an audience of one instead of an audience of a hundred. So God, I just confess. This is what it looks like. I confess that I fall short of that. I, I I would rather people be impressed by me than having a genuine conversation with you. That's what that might look like. And there's any number of things... He might use the Sermon on the Mount to to address in your life. And then ask him for grace to be transformed and become more like him in that area. Lord, free me from people-pleasing. Free me from caring too much what people think about how great my prayers are. And free me to really have a sustained focus on you so that I'm actually talking to you when I pray, which is, a lot more difficult than you think. How can I get better at this? What are some practices that I can do? Do I need to spend more time in private praying? Like praying, what do I need to do? And he'll interact with you on that. And here's a tip. It's not a one-time prayer. It's an ongoing conversation about that particular issue. 
And the Sermon on the Mount will transform you. You will become a good person. Surrendering what is not right about your life now to God and asking for grace to change. And today, if you hear his voice, if you sense the gentle tug of love toward Jesus, listen to that. And have the conversation with him. And be honest about, I don't know how to work all this out. I don't know what all this means. I, I want to have this type of relationship with you, Jesus. He'll get it. He'll pick up what you're lying down there. And it doesn't mean that life will suddenly become easy. It doesn't mean that all your problems will go away. It doesn't mean that you'll, you'll live in a perpetual experience of just joy and just God's goodness all the time and there won't be any suffering. We've learned that. But it does mean that Jesus has pledged himself to be with you in sickness and in health. And death will not part you from this one. You'll be with him forever. You'll never be alone again. Never. He'll be with you every moment of your life and every moment of eternity. He's never leading. That's what he pledges. That's what it's like to, for a peasant like me to become friends with a king. That's what it is. And over time with him, you will become a kinder, gentler, more loving version of yourself. And your life will be marked by a peace and joy and righteousness that is stable through all the storms of life. And in the end, you will see that you have entered into a kingdom in which every tribe and tongue has been welcomed. And that is the kingdom of God. So my encouragement for you is to start living in that kingdom now. And when he returns, it will be here in full, and you'll get to thank him personally. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.